Aren't y'all so thankful for our awesome worship team? <laughs> I am so, so thankful. Well, it's good to see you guys again. I'm Barrett. If you came in late, it's good to see you, and we're so thankful that you're here. Today is our last day in our study of Let Them Hear, our series, and our study of Revelation 2 and 3. So if you've got your Bible, I do encourage you to get it open. Revelation chapter 3. And I don't know about you, um, but I have really... I have really um, heard from God a lot, and uh, in some ways, really hard, in some ways, really good. Um, All of it's really good, but sometimes God brings the good through the hard, and um, I'm kind of sad to see this series end, Um, but I'll tell you what I'm not sad about. You ready? Next week, we start our Easter series, and... Some of y'all need to get more excited about that. So um, next week is actually April. Can you believe that? What has happened to this year? Um, but next week is the first Sunday in April, and we are going to be starting next week. And I'm just, and this is a shameless plug, right? Starting next week, our new series uh, that will be a four-part series. It's three Sundays, basically next Sunday, this Palm Sunday, then Good Friday, which is the 14th, and then Easter Sunday, which is the 16th, all right? So it's a four-part series called The Beautiful Exchange, Beautiful Exchange, and we're just going to be talking about the the glories of all that Easter uh, represents for us. And so I'm excited to kick that off next week. Anybody excited about that? Yeah? So make sure you do invite people. I I really do encourage you. um, This is a wonderful time of year to just invite people. People are already open it's just the natural time that people, especially here in the South and in Memphis, Tennessee, and if you're listening online uh, and places in, in the world that are um, different than Memphis, Tennessee, maybe you should reconsider this about what I'm going to say. But here in the South, people are already thinking um, about Easter season. It's a time that a lot of people think religiously, even if they don't have a spirituality or true relationship with God, they think religiously and they think, I need to be somewhere usually around Christmas and on Easter. And we as a church have a cool opportunity this time of year, literally, just to, to, to say, hey, like, are you thinking about going anywhere for Easter? It's a kind of chill question. It's, it's not too confrontational. Um, if they are, invite them to come with you. Say, because a lot of people don't, don't know where to go or they don't have uh, the go-to church because uh, so many people in this community are so transitional. So just ask them, say, hey, you can come with me. You can come with my family. You can do what we do. We go to, you know, Island Community Church, and by inviting them here, you know you'll have the opportunity to at least give them a chance to hear the good news of the saving love of Jesus Christ. And um, we also are going to be having baptism on Easter Sunday, so it's just going to be a really cool day for us as a body of Christ, but also to welcome many people from the community uh, who maybe not, maybe they are not usually here, but they'll be here that day. So think about taking those cards out in the lobby and just invite somebody. Um, It's an open door of opportunity like we talked about last week. But today, we're finishing our series, Let Them Hear. And we've been in this really since around the start of Lent. And this is a time of year where we prepare for Easter and we seek greater preparation personally and greater purity of heart that we might be more fully like, I mean, seriously, y'all, that we might be be rid of, of stuff in our life that distracts us and just, just pulls us away 
from a vibrant relationship with Jesus. And that's what this season is really about. And I hope you're doing that. If you haven't started doing that in some way, I mean, I just, I pray that on a daily basis, more than just on Sundays, we're glad you're here, but I do pray that personally for you on a daily basis that you're seeking to find ways to continue to prepare your heart uh, for this, the, the true significance of the Easter season and seek just greater purity, be more fully given over uh, to Christ. And these letters have been so helpful for, for us because Jesus speaks to these churches. We've talked about how um, in these, for these seven churches, this is the book of Revelation was written, given to John, and John being the disciple who Jesus loved and the one who was actually the last uh, remaining apostle, those who actually interacted with Jesus while he was on earth. He was the last remaining apostle. They had tried to kill John and they weren't successful. He got exiled to the Isle of Patmos uh, and there he was met by Jesus and encouraged and given these words. And these words are for the churches uh, of all of that region of Asia Minor, which is now most of these churches in, in modern-day Turkey, all right? So you just think about that's the region where these churches um, that Jesus is talking to, that's where they were. But it's also written for us because over and over we see in the, the words, he who has ears, what does it say? Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, these are important words, not only for those particular churches, but for us as well, the collective church, those of us who are followers of Jesus. And so if you're sincere about about your relationship with Christ and wanting to grow in that relationship, then you will listen to what Jesus speaks to the churches. And I believe that we have been listening as Jesus has been speaking. And I've heard from so many of you, golly, it's been encouraging. Um, I have been meeting with people pretty much yeah, weekly, who have asked for meetings and follow up on something that Jesus is speaking to them in, in the words that we study together as a church. And we have had people come uh, to new life through this series. Isn't that awesome? Praise God that, that his words are still bringing people to life and people coming to repentance and to just rededication to the Lord. And I just pray for you. Um, this is the last message of this series. If you've missed any, you can go and listen to them online. But I pray for you that you would truly listen, not just sit through the sermon, all right? Everybody can sit through the sermon and we can wait for it to be finished. Some of y'all are already waiting right now for it to be finished. You're thinking he hasn't even started. This is gonna be bad. He ha- you're, I'm just, when is he gonna finish? Some of you are already there. But as we approach any, any message, my heart is only to speak the words of Jesus and to help you understand the words of Jesus. And I just pray you wouldn't just wait for the sermon to be finished, but that you would listen, that right now we could just take a minute. I'm gonna give a minute. And you could just pray, to, just take a second of prayer and pray, Lord, would you help me not to just sit and wait and to just listen with my physical ears, but Lord, I give you right now my heart. I want my, my spiritual heart, the truest, my, the deepest part of my soul. I, I'm listening. I want to hear what you have to say. So let's pray and give you a second and let's just ask God to speak to us on this last day of this series.
God, we have gathered today that we might meet with you. None of us have come to, I hope, just go through religious motions, Lord, but we want to meet with you. We want to fellowship with you. We want to hear from you. Lord, we want more of your presence in our life. We thank you for the gift of your word that is alive. Your word in Jesus and your word here in our Bible. And we know your word is speaking, Lord. The question is whether we're listening. And we just tell you today, we're listening, God. We want to listen to you. We want to hear. We want your spirit to speak. I just confess today, I have nothing to speak other than what you speak, Father. So, Lord, would you speak to hearts? Would you encourage and challenge and convict and change us in the ways that we need you, God? You know every heart in this room. You know what every person needs to hear. And I pray today that we would be receptive to your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, for your love. Thank you for your love, your grace that forgives. Thank you for the open door of new life for all who choose to repent and believe. We come to you, Jesus, for you are life. Where else can we go? And we pray that we would listen in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read the text this morning, Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Listen for those consistencies that we've talked about are present in each of the letters, the description of Christ, the encouragement, the words of, of, of serious kind of con- condemnation or concern, the words of instruction, the warning if it is not kept, the promise if it is kept, and the invitation to hear. See if you can hear those consistencies as we listen to this final letter of the seven letters of Revelation, starting in verse 14 of chapter 3, and I read from the ESV. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, the words of the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would you, would that you were either cold or hot? So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him 
and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. If you're taking notes this morning, and I hope that you are, so that you can not just be a hearer of God's word, but a doer of God's word, and so that you can teach your children and other people who you disciple and people who around the world need to know more about the Bible. Uh, I pray that you would take notes this morning so that you could really engage and learn with the scripture and follow up in your small group this week if your group is tracking along with our series. Um, I just want to walk through the list of consistencies because I've found that this is probably the most helpful as you become a student of God's word and really try to understand these letters. So we've got these consistencies and we'll just start with the description of Christ. Jesus, at the beginning of each letter, uh, starts by pointing the church's attention to him. He says, hey, I'm writing to you, church, but I want you to know who I am. And we talked about last week and in weeks past how the most important part of our uh, journey every single day is to put our eyes upon Jesus. Not to look at who you are, but to look at who he is. And in right perspective of Jesus, everything else will take its shape. And so he starts and he gives a description of Jesus there in verse 14. He says, to the church in Laodicea, write the words. All right, so what's your list going to be? The words of what? The amen. The faithful and true witness. The beginning of God's creation. Those are the three-part, that's the three-part description of Jesus that he gives in this letter. Write down that he who speaks to you, you can understand him as this. The amen, the faithful and true witness and the source, the beginning of God's creation. We'll just walk through these briefly. He says he presents himself as the amen. Anybody ever used the word amen before? Amen. Some of y'all just said amen. That was weird. Um, Most of us have used it at least, even if we don't quite understand what it means, we have at least used it um, in our our prayer life. Typically, we end prayers by saying amen. Who actually knows what it means? Anybody? Okay, let it be. Let it be so, all right? That's basically what it means. Um, It's a word that means... This is true. Yeah. You're basically agreeing, okay? It's the idea of agreement. Certainty. You can be sure about this. Let it be so. It is what it is, all right? That's what it means. So when you're saying amen, essentially what you're doing at the end of a prayer is you're agreeing that this prayer would be so, this this would be true, that this would be sure. You're agreeing with that in your heart. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16, actually, one of the titles for God, you can just write that reference down for later. You can look at it yourself. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16. One of the words for God in the Old Testament is the God of amen. The God of amen. And essentially what that means is that um, God is a reliable God. (laughs) Whatever God speaks, you can know that that is true. You can be sure that whatever God says or whatever God does or whatever God thinks, whatever his assessment may be, that it is right. Let God be God. Let it be so. He is the God of amen. So um, interestingly, 
Jesus says, I am the one who, what does it say there in verse 14? These are the words of who? The amen. So what is he doing? He's equating himself, first of all, with God. Okay? He's saying, I am God. In other words, everything that I am completely agrees with God. (laughs) This is a beautiful part about Jesus. A lot of people may misunderstand Jesus as one who who just comes as one in the line of, of prophets or just another good man or another good teacher, but Jesus never claimed that. He always claimed that he was completely one with God. In fact, that he was God himself, God in the flesh. He says, I am completely agree with God. I, you're listening to the words of the amen. You know, um, have, y'all remember in the New Testament, as you read the gospels, how Jesus will sometimes say, maybe in your translation, it says, verily, verily, I say to you, or it says, truly, truly, I say to you. In other words, what he's saying is, amen, amen, I say to you. All right, that's basically how it would kind of translate. What he's saying is everything that Jesus says, he speaks with authority because he speaks not with his own words, but with the very words of God. Everything that Jesus is, everything that he does, everything that he pronounces is completely agreeable with God himself. If you want to know who God is, know Jesus. That's what he came announcing. I am the, I am the closest thing <laughs> You will ever see to God because I am completely one with him. Everything that I am is completely agreeable with God. So it means he is God himself, but it also, in a, in a more maybe profound way, in, in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, I'd like for you to write that reference down too. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. I'm going to turn to it. You're welcome to do it too. I love teaching God's word. It is just so fun. It is so fun. Y'all have fun studying God's word. It is awesome because you begin to see all these connections in scripture. And I don't want to do anything other than to just call your attention to what God has written and to more fully understand and appreciate how wonderful Jesus truly is. Here's another aspect of how Jesus is our amen. In verse chapter one of second Corinthians, verse 20, it says, for all of the promises of God, find their yes. In other words, their amen. Some of y'all folks, y'all like to call out in the middle of worship service, and I like it when you do that. And you say, amen. What the scripture says is for all the promises of God, find their amen in Jesus. And he says this, that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. In other words, Jesus is the complete fulfillment, the guarantee, confidence, assurance of every promise that God has ever made. It finds its completion and fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus comes on the scene and he affirms everything about God and all that God has promised and guarantees it by his own perfect work in his life, death, and resurrection. He guarantees that all the promises of God, you can say amen to them. If you ever wonder, there are times in life where you doubt, you might question a promise of God. Is that going to be so? And if you do that, friends, just look to Jesus and you can be sure that he is the amen on the end of all of our prayers in accordance to God's promise and will. Isn't that great? 
He is our yes. Our yes from God. Amen. So Jesus, okay, I got too excited. Jesus, we're just in part one of the description. He says the words of the amen. Secondly, he says the faithful and true witness. And that goes right along exactly with the amen. He's saying basically that he is perfectly trustworthy. All right, so if you're writing down, what does that mean, faithful and true witness? I would just write, he is perfectly trustworthy. You can trust Jesus. Every time he writes a check, it's never gonna bounce. You can take it to the bank, take it to the bank every time. He is good for all that he says and all that he has promised. He is faithful to his word. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. He would not have said that if it were not true. He is our truth and he shows us the way. Everything that God, that he speaks, John chapter three talks about how it came uh, from God. Everything that he assesses, it's an accurate assessment. And then he says, the third part here, he says, not only am I the words of the amen, not only am I the faithful and true witness, but I am the beginning of God's creation. The beginning of God's creation. Now, some of you might think, well, does that mean that Jesus was created? That is not, that is not what it means. Now, that is where uh, many heresies start, okay? Even the, the most famous one is the her- heresy that happened in the church of Colossae, which is where we get our book of Colossians. The whole book was a, to really address the heresy that Jesus was one who was created by God and not God himself. But listen, friends, that is not what he's saying because this word essentially means he is the ruler. In the English, it gets a little bit muddled up, but it's basically saying, RK, it means he is the ruler. It can mean beginning, but it also means he is the ruler. He is the source. Just as it says in Colossians chapter one, all things are, are from him. There was not anything made, all right? John chapter one, from him was made everything. Nothing was made apart from him. There was not anything made that he himself did not create. He is the creator, the source, the origin of all of creation. Friend, you are here today because Jesus created. <laughs> you are here today. Your life is owed to Jesus. He created you. All things created by him and through him and for him. He is the source of all creation. So Jesus comes on the scene and he says, listen, I want you to know who it is uh, that is writing to you. I've often thought in, in preaching this, and this is the last week I have to do this, but I've thought as I've been teaching this, you know, I want you to make sure that you find practical application for God's word and that you're not just sitting here. What are you gonna do with all that you learned about Jesus in this series? That's what I've, that's what I've wondered. Am I doing a good job as a pastor to equip you in God's word? Because if all we do is just make lists and then just shove it in the notebook or in, the, in our phone app, a notes app, and it just sits there and rots until basically one day we go, oh, what was that again? You know, that's not very helpful. Why is Jesus speaking to us about himself over and over in, in, in God's word and in these chapters? Here's what you can do. Here's a practical application for what you do. I pray that these lists that you would learn more about Jesus, but you would turn these back into prayers. One thing you could do is just take the list of all the attributes of Jesus that you've made in these seven letters and take one a day and just turn it into a prayer of praise. I pray that you have time with God every day. And what you can do is just take one attribute a day. You could take more if you'd like to, but one a day is okay. And just meditate on that and say it back to God. Jesus, today I come to you and I praise you I thank you. I just worship you because you are the amen. You are the God of certainty. You're the one who says, let it be. 
When I come to you, I know that everything that you say is true. And Jesus, by what you've done, I just thank you that because of what you did and coming to live for me and dying to forgive my sin and rising to provide new life, you have, you've guaranteed for me that every promise that God makes, I can trust. You have provided the, the way for these promises to be given to me. So I come to you and I just say amen. And Lord Jesus, you are my amen. When I pray a prayer to you to, at any point today, I just thank you that I don't pray a prayer on the basis of what I hope for in my own flesh, but I pray a prayer with confidence because of what you have already told me you provide by your living and dying for me. Amen? See, that's how you can make this practical. You can do that with every single attribute that we've talked about. If, this is, if these things are only living in la-la land up here and they're not finding a root in our heart, we've got a question, what are, are we really hearing God's I mean, are we really doing God's word or only just listening with our physical ears? Are we really hearing with our heart? I pray that all of these descriptions of Jesus and these letters, and as we continue to teach in years to come, that these things would find root in your heart and that you would learn to live every day with your first attention on Jesus and just admiring him, praising him, thanking him for who he is. I promise you, it'll change your perspective, right? So he says, here I am, the amen, the faithful and true witness and the beginning of God's creation. Now, we're gonna get into the meat of the letter here. And uh, before we do that, I'll just, I'll tell you a little bit about um, Laodicea. Does anybody know anything about Laodicea? No? Has anybody ever heard this letter before? It's probably the most famous of the seven letters. Y'all, y'all with me? Some of y'all grew up in the old school churches and you heard that verse, oh, he's standing at the door knocking. Y'all, y'all heard that before, right? Some of you, have you ever been to an old tent revival or, or a church that was incredibly evangelistic? Um, you might've heard that verse before. It's a common verse and it comes right out of this letter. Laodicea is about 45 miles Southwest of Philadelphia and um, about 90 miles East of Ephesus. And it was actually founded by Antioch II in the third century BC. He actually named it for his wife. And it was uh, a really interesting city. There was a lot going on in the city and I don't have the time to get into all the history of it, but there are a few things that are important for you to know. Um, so if you're taking notes, you can maybe just write this down. Laodicea was, was a, a trade town. It was all of these cities, people coming and going everywhere, but Laodicea was in a strategic place and it was known as a commercial center. All right. So that's the first thing you need to know. It's known for its banking. They had a lot of money. They got very wealthy because they had so much business flowing through Laodicea. In fact, it was one of the the most wealthy, affluent uh, places at the time in this area. So much so that when the earthquake happened, I talked about the earthquakes last week in Philadelphia, right? We talked about that. But when the earthquake happened and a lot of destruction in Laodicea, there's actually a historical document that shows that they did not want or need help from the Roman government to rebuild. It actually says they provided, they self-funded their own city's renewal. It's really interesting. Very, very affluent, very wealthy business center, much like Memphis, much like Mud Island or Mitta. People, you know, you can just imagine, they... They've got a little bit more than most. And that's not true of everybody here, but for a lot of us in America, look, listen, friends, just being an American, even those who don't have as much as others, we have a little bit more than most in the world. They, they were affluent. They were also um, people who made, they were famous for a black wool, a very glossy black wool, and they made clothes. It was 
they were a city of style, all right? So they liked shopping at, um, you know, the good stores. I don't know what you consider a good store. Some of you would say, you know, Gap is a good store. Some of you would say Neiman Marcus is a good store. Um, some of you would say Nordstrom or Saks Fifth is a really nice store. I don't know. But whatever you think of, you know, they liked looking presentable. And they, they actually made, they were kind of a fashion center for the area. And third, they were really known because of this eye salve. They had a medical school in Laodicea. It's really interesting, you med students. Anybody med student? This is cool. This is for you. They actually came up with a, a, a very famous ointment at the time that helped to soothe and to heal eyes. People who were having blindness or eye problems, they actually invented it just right by the, right by the city here. So it's really interesting. They were really known because of this, this famous eye salve that they created. And people would come from all over, like a regional medical center, uh, to get help with their eyes. Now, one interesting thing about Laodicea is because of their position on a plain, they had some rivers, but they were completely undrinkable. And what happened was they, they did not have an adequate source of water supply. So they had everything else, but they didn't have an adequate source of water supply. So they actually had to, they're very smart people. We sometimes think about people back in the day as antiquated and kind of dumb or whatever, but they were really smart for what they had. And for the time that they were living, they were very, very smart people. And they had made an aqueduct system to get water into the town. But what they had to do is they basically had to turn to the two cities that were closest to them, which was Hierapolis, um, they were famous for their hot springs. All right, so think about Hierapolis. Y'all ever been to Hot Springs, Arkansas? All right, they were Hot Springs, Arkansas. Now, I've never been, but I had breakfast with Kurt on Friday morning, and he was telling me about Hot Springs, and he said that people go get naked, and they get in the water, and... Oh, wait, you didn't say that. Um, <laughs> sorry, I put... I asked, do people go get naked there? And Because uh, I didn't want it to be... We were thinking about a trip there, and I was like, I don't want this to be weird, you know? Like, I don't know how I feel about getting naked into some healing waters. But Hierapolis was basically the, the hot springs of Asia Minor, okay? They were known for its hot water. Colossae was the other town nearby, and they were known for its cold, perfectly chilled, refreshing water. And what Laodicea had figured out was they, they didn't have water on their own, so they piped it in from both of these places, but a perpetual problem we know from the history books in Laodicea was that by the time the water got there from either Hierapolis or Colossae, it was just plain gross. It was gross because it had lost its heat or it lost its cool. And it just, anybody ever had a cup of coffee and about 10 o'clock, you make it at 7 a.m. and about 10 o'clock, it's still sitting on your desk and it's half there and you go to drink it and you're like, Bleh! anybody ever done that? It's, it's law of thermodynamics, right? If, if nothing else is added, it's just gonna become moderate, moderate and neutral, whatever. I'm not a scientist, so that was a really good description for me. All right, so... Um, the reality is it just becomes blocked. And sometimes you, if you go to the gym or whatever, like when we go to Guatemala in a few months, man, you start the day and you think, oh, thank you, Lord, for this cold water. But then by the middle of the day, you go to drink it and you're like, I can't even drink this junk. I mean, it is like lukewarm. It's just, we all understand lukewarm. And that was a problem. People complained about that in Laodicea. And part of it too was they had built these aqueducts out of material and it picked up a bunch of junk and it just wasn't... It, it, that was their main issue, all right? They, they had an issue. Now, interestingly, as we get back to our text in verse 15, Jesus is a perfect missiologist, and what he does is he takes, this is what we do anytime we go around the world. We take 
the things that we can understand in the culture that surrounds us and we help people understand the gospel through the lens of something they already understand. This is what Jesus did all the time as he's working with the disciples. Why do you think he talked so much about vines and branches and sheep and goats and all this stuff? Why do you think that? Because they were walking around and he saw sheep and goats and everywhere he was trying to find a way to teach us and his disciples at that time to teach them something about the kingdom of God and a right relationship with God and the way of salvation and how to know Jesus. He was teaching it using what they understood. Here in Laodicea, Jesus is doing the same thing. He's saying, okay, I know these things about you, and I'm going to use these things to help you know something about something you don't quite understand, which is your relationship with me. And he jumps, he skips the encouragement altogether, and he goes right to some hard words. This is a hard letter because it is a stubborn and and a troubled church. And he says in verse 15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. If you're taking notes this morning and the words of instruction as we look at them here, or not the words of instruction, but the words of of rebuke and challenge, you can write down first that they were lukewarm in heart. They were a people who were self deceived. He goes, okay, guys, I know you got a problem with your water. You can't get it hot enough from Hierapolis and you can't keep it cold enough from Colossae. And every time you go to drink the water, everybody talks about how it's lukewarm and you just want to spit it out of your mouth. I know that about you. Now, here's something I want you to get. As I look at you, church, I see a problem. Because I'm seeing your heart. We talked about before how man looks at the outward appearance, it says in Samuel, but God looks at the heart. And he says, and what I see is that you have the same problem as the water in your town in terms of where your heart is. For you are neither hot, which has its own purpose, or cold, which has its own purpose, but you are lukewarm. And when I taste of what's going on in your heart, I get the same gut reaction as what you have when you taste a lukewarm water. It just is not pleasant. I want to spit you out of my mouth. It's not what I desire. It's not what I want to be there. Oh, if, if you would only be hot or cold. But since you're not, I'm going to spit you out. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. These are hard words, aren't they? Um, but they're important words for us to hear because he's saying, what, what is he saying? If you had to sum it up in your own words, how would you, how would you say it? Jesus doesn't want lukewarm, apathetic hearts, right? He doesn't want cultural Christians. 
Christians who just go through the motions. We've talked about this before in other letters. Who just kind of float, ride, carry along, but in their hearts are lifeless, are apathetic, are dull, are insensitive, are just to the things of God. It's not what it's not what Jesus wants. I mean, we all understand the difference in cold or hot. He's saying, oh, if you would either be cold or hot, there's value in either one, but since you're lukewarm, since you're just neither, spit you out on that. Where is your life, true life in me? Where's your passion? Where's your joy? Since when have you not been sensitive to my Holy Spirit? Since when does the glory of what I've done for you and the cross of salvation of Jesus, since when has that faded in significance in your heart or in your mind? Since when does that not make you excited? Wanting to just leap for joy. Since when has following me been a, become a, a drudge? Boring way of life. Since when has my, my word stopped being exciting for you to go to on a daily basis to hear from me? Since when have you decided that other stuff in your life is more important than your relationship with me? Since when has entertainment, shopping, material stuff, education, and all other ways of the world become a greater excitement for you than growing in your relationship with me. Oh, friends, you are neither cold nor hot because you're lukewarm. A taste of what's going on in your heart just makes me spit you out of my mouth. It's not what I want. It's, it's like in First Timothy chapter, Second Timothy chapter three, verse five. There are people who have the form of godliness, but they lack the power. There's a verse there. It says they have the form of godliness, but they lack the power. Or in Romans chapter ten, like he said about the Jews, the Jews had the right outward trappings, a zeal for God, but they lacked true knowledge of God. And friends, I'm telling you, um, I think the words of this letter are so particularly challenging because, do you want to know the hardest people in the world for me to, to talk to about Jesus? You want to know the hardest people? And, and it's not just me. You talk to other people about Jesus too, wanting to, people to have a relationship with Jesus. You want to know the hardest people to talk to about Jesus? People who think they're Christians, but they're not. False Christians. I'd rather share the gospel with a prostitute than to share the gospel with somebody who's been in church their whole life thinking that they're saved, but they have no real relationship with God. Now, I would love to share the gospel with both of them. Here, okay, okay, I would love to share the gospel with both of them. I'm not saying that I don't like church people. Here's what I'm saying, though, is the prostitute, has greater awareness of her sin and her desperation 
for some kind of forgiveness and healing and restoration. She's wrong, but she, at least she knows she's wrong. See? She's got a greater awareness of her desperate need for saving relationship with Jesus if she has that desire. But she would have a greater awareness than one who has been sitting in church their whole life and they think they're fine with God. They've got all the good works. They've got a good reputation. They're a respectable person. They go through the motions. They're in church and out of church. They've got a Bible. They know the answers. But friends, they don't have a true living relationship with God. And they are almost impossible to penetrate into their heart because they're so prideful and stubborn based on all the religious stuff that they can be so blind to the fact that Jesus hates people who just go through the motions but refuse to come to him for true life. It's disgusting. That is not what Jesus wants. He hates that kind of pride and sin in us. That's why over and over the... the, the people who Jesus had the hardest, the harshest words for in the New Testament. Y'all read the Gospels, right? It, it was not for the sinners and the tax collectors, the drunkards and the gluttons. It was for the Pharisees. He got condemned and criticized and misunderstood all the time because he was hanging out with all the poor and lowly, pitiful, sinner, reject kind of people. And by the social elites and the religious elites and the church crowd, they were all... What is he doing with all those nobodies, those no goods? Don't, doesn't he know that lifestyle is disgusting? And he goes, friends, that's exactly why I'm with them, because they know their lifestyle is disgusting and they see their need for me. I didn't come for the well. I came for the sick. And if you, you religious folks would just see that you're not well either, you're just as sick as them, then you might have a chance for life. But I'm telling you, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of the needle than a rich man to enter heaven. I'm telling you, it is hard. He called them a brood of vipers. These are religious leaders of the day. You brood of vipers. Can you imagine? This is Jesus. Okay, loving, sweet, merciful, compassionate Jesus. But he comes at the religious crowd hard because they are so hard-hearted. And he says, you got to wake up and realize that I don't want religion. I want a relationship. I don't want just your mundane, everyday, just go through the motions kind of religious ease. I want a heart. I want your heart, a heart that knows the incredible gracious love that I have for you and that has been set on fire, that's burning, that's alive, hot. of your love for me. You see, Jesus wants our hearts to be connected and passionate and infused with life in him. He doesn't want lukewarm. It's not what he wants. And he says, I see that you're neither hot nor cold. You get this about your water, so I'm trying to tell you that the same thing is going on in your heart. You're self-deceived. And then look at verse 17. He says, he continues and he says, also this, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. But you don't realize that you, you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Golly, Moses, he's really coming at him, isn't he? 
Okay, friends, I know that when you look down the hill at all the other houses, you think, well, my house is bigger than theirs. I've got a, I've got a big bank account. I've educated. People respect me. I've got influence. We created the I-South for this region. Don't you know that? We are, we are well-off folks. We're moving up. We're dre- look, have you seen my new shirt? I look cute today. Have you seen the shoe? I mean, this is a really trendy shoe. Do you realize that like we are leading the fashion industry? Like if you look around, like we are, we're legit. I mean, we don't look like the, the, the ragtag folk. We, we look good. We're on the cutting edge of the world, man. We're leading. We're pioneers. I look good. We provide heat. You know, we've got it going on with that. Jesus just comes in and he says, look, let me just say this. I, I know that you think, okay, I'm rich, I'm wealthy, I don't need anything. But you are measuring all the wrong things. I don't care about your bank account. I don't care about your education. I don't care about what you're doing and your practice of medicine. Although, I mean, Jesus does care about that if you're doing it for him. But, I mean, what he's saying is that's not going to get you anywhere. That's not going to get you anywhere in terms of spiritual relationship with God. Okay? You line up the list. Okay, you look cute. Yeah, you look cute. But that's not going to get you into heaven, okay? It's not going to get you a deeper relationship with Jesus. He's saying you're using all the wrong measurements. And because you have chosen the wrong measurements, you have decided that you don't need me. Because you're feeling good about yourself using the wrong measurements. Y'all see? But... Let me tell you how to measure yourself correctly. Because I'm not looking at the bank account or the education or the, the things that you're doing or the clothes that you're wearing. I'm not comparing you to other people. I'm looking at your heart. And I'm telling you, I'm seeing something that should not be there. You're wretched. You got a big house, but you don't have me. And that makes you poor. You got a lot of money, but you don't have true wealth. True wealth comes in me. So I'm looking at it and I'm going, that's not going to follow you anywhere. I'm looking at your clothes, but don't you know my word? Charm is deceitful, beauty is in vain, but a woman, a man too, who fears the Lord is to be praised. I'm looking at your education and your good work and I'm thinking, you're providing good to people's physical bodies, but do you really know the good that I can do in a person's heart? You see? You're curing eyes, but your own spiritual eyes, you're blind. You're not even seeing the glories of Christ. What good would it do to see the glories of the world, to travel to every country and see all the magnificent things of creation, if yet your spiritual eyes have never been opened to the magnificent, even more further surpassing worth and beauty of Christ? What good would that do? See? And isn't it easy, friends? Let me, let me just be honest with ourselves, right? Is it easy in our world to become self-sufficient? Yes. Everybody, should. come on now, right? It's easy, right? It's easy. They have become self-sufficient. And when you become self-sufficient, you lose the thing that you need the most that is the very foundation of faith, which is a, a true awareness of your, your dependency upon Christ. 
And when you lose awareness of your dependency upon Christ, no matter how glorious he is and what he gives, you will never fully appreciate. Because you'll think, oh, that's just an add-on. It's friends, Jesus is not an add-on to your wealth, to your stock market account, to your bank account, to your education, to your clothes. He's not just an add-on. He is everything. He's everything. And friends, we've got to be careful not to get to the point that we are, are more enthralled with our conveniences than we are enthralled with Christ. Is there anything in your life that distracts you from a true sense of your own dependency and the magnificence of Jesus Christ? If so, let it go. 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 Can't hold it back anymore. All right. Let it go. Let it go. That's why Jesus, there are some people that Jesus met and he literally, all he can do is say, for you, you need to give up everything and and sell it all and then follow me. Because I know that you're so enthralled with your wealth that literally you've got to divest yourself of that in order that you might find true dependence upon me. Some of us need to, we've got to reorient. We've got to reorient that we might be rid of this false hope of self-sufficiency and find true hope that is found only in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm speaking to myself here, all right? I'm speaking to myself because I know how hard it is. It's hard. I just wonder... You want to know how, how to learn whether or not your true dependency is in Christ? Play out the scenarios in your head. If, if tomorrow we woke up and the stock market was gone, would your world be just chaos? If so, you might be hoping in the stock market more than Christ. If you woke up tomorrow and you got kicked out of your medical school or optometry school and it was gone, all you've been working on and your accomplishments or you got fired from your job, you lost your reputation, would your world just spin into chaos? If so, you might be hoping in some of those accomplishments more than Christ. If you woke up tomorrow and, and got diagnosed with a, something that you, it was life-threatening, God forbid it, but if that spins you into chaos or confusion, are you hoping in your health more than you are Christ? You see? You've got to identify, are, are we, are we, could we be like the Laodiceans? To where we have, we have, we're measuring the wrong things when Jesus is saying, here's what I want, I want your heart. Now he says, verse 18, I know I've got to close. He says, I counsel you. This is, gets into our instruction now. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. He's saying, friends, I am imploring you that if you can hear what I'm speaking by my spirit, if you can hear and you feel conviction in your heart and you could see how you could be easily led astray or lukewarm in your religiosity and lacking a relationship with me, if you can hear, I am 
pleading with you. I'm inviting you by my grace. What a wonderful grace. He could have just said, I'm going to burn you up right now. It's over. You foolish Laodiceans. You're done. But no, he doesn't. He says, I'm giving you an opportunity to come back to me. I'm giving you an opportunity to purchase true riches. True riches. You know what true riches are? Faith. That's why the Bible says godliness with contentment is great gain. You're not going to take, you don't bring anything to the world. You're not going to take anything out of the world. If you can learn this in terms of materialism, that godliness with contentment is the greatest gain. You don't get more by having more. The way you get more is by pushing into God more. And if you could learn to be free of the endless pursuit of materialism, friends, then you'd get something. He who gives everything away and receives what Jesus has to offer, he has everything. I'm asking that you get pure gold. I'm asking that you clothe yourself with white garments. The garments that Jesus supplies are prettier than your newest Chanel shoes or your newest J. Crew shirt. I'm a J. Crew fan. I love J. Crew. And that's what, that speaks to me now. Now we're talking. The garments that Jesus provides are better than any new J. Crew shirt I could ever have. Because he provides white garments, garments of his own righteousness, and clothes us in those that we might be pure in his sight. The greatest thing that you could ever put on, make you beautiful every morning, is just to be clothed in the very righteousness of Jesus. And he says, I'll give you an eye salve. It's better than any cream that you've created to put on your physical eyes. I'm going to give you the opportunity to see me. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The greatest things that you could ever behold are not things with your physical eyes, but they're things with your heart. And we need to pray, God, open my heart to see the glories of Christ. Amen? He says, the instruction here is realize the riches that are offered to you in Christ. Now, you've got to do something with that. If you could see what Jesus offers, the real life that he offers, friends, then, then, you can make progress. Here's what you do, verse 19. Those who I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, and I will eat with him, and he will eat with me. Friends, if you could, if you right now, the Holy Spirit speaking to you, and you're seeing the riches of Christ as superior to wealth or education or comforts or convenience or anything that you could do in your accomplishments or religiosity, if the Spirit is saying, look at the glories of Christ, pursue that, then friends, here's how you take action action. You be willing to accept discipline. In our day, we don't like authority that's higher than ourselves, but friends, the starting point for a relationship with Jesus is recognizing that he has more authority than you. You're under his authority. Accept what he says about you. Don't defend yourself. Don't excuse it. Don't try to hide it or run from it. Pretend like it's not a problem. You've got a problem. Your heart has a problem. It's called sin and you can't fix it. You need a healer. Accept the correction. Repent. Turn from what you've been holding on to in your heart and turn toward the surpassing greatness of knowing and having Jesus. And let him do his work in you. Open the door for crying out loud. It's, Jesus is not a pitiful savior, just standing at the door. He is a mighty king. This, this picture of Christ 
baffles me because it is a king who has the rights to the eternal sovereign throne of God who was willing to come after us and knock that we might have a relationship with him. Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. And unlike many people think, this door is not the door of your heart. It's the door of this church, okay? But it is a door of our heart. There is a door of our heart. But he's saying to this church, I'm I'm at the door of your church. And if anyone in your assembly is willing to come and open the door, then listen, friends. I will come in and I will be with him and he will be with me. Eating a meal with someone in the day of Jesus was the highest sign of union and fellowship. And what Jesus is saying is, you will be mine and I will be yours. We will dine together. Praise Jesus. Amen. Now, to those who open the door, who accept discipline, who repent and turn for Christ and receive what he has and open the door and invite him in, to those, he says, this final promise. And I promise I'm almost finished. I know y'all got food to eat. and Some of y'all are still thinking, is he going to finish today? I am. Don't know when, but it'll be today. To the one who conquers, verse 21, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. And I will also, as I also conquered and sat with my father on my throne, he who has an ear is let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What in the world? What a gracious and mighty God. The promise, first of all, that we will eat with Jesus in his new kingdom. Can you believe that day? Ser- friends, if you're serious about this, putting your hope more in Christ than what you have, if you are serious about fanning into flame the gift of faith, letting that fire burn. If, you, if that is your highest goal and priority and pursuit in life is to know him and to know him more, friends, there's a day coming that you will get to sit across a real table from King Jesus. Come on. You're gonna eat supper with him. I don't know if it's gonna be Outback Steak and Lobster. I saw a commercial yesterday and it looks so, so good. I don't know what it will be that we eat, but friends, it won't matter because we will sit across from our Savior and we will enjoy his company and he will enjoy ours. Are you kidding me? Jesus will enjoy my company? That is grace, friends. He will let me climb up onto the throne and sit with him? Are you kidding me? But he says, yeah. It's not like Santa in the lap of the mall kind of thing. I really don't think so. But what grace, grace, God's grace, that he not only would be willing to forgive, but would be willing to give us all things. That he would be willing to share what has been given to him. That there is a day that we will share his fellowship, share his presence, and even share the rule that has been given to him in the new kingdom of God. I can't wait. I can't wait to sit across from him. I can't wait to be invited Are you excited about this? I don't know if you are or not, but I'll tell you this. He who has ears, you better hear. Because it's not Barrett speaking. The Spirit speaks to the church. I pray you know Jesus. As we close today, I just pray that you know Jesus. I'm telling you, he's the best. He is wonderful in every way. He's better than anything, anything, anything you could ever ask or imagine. Jesus is better. And you were created to have a relationship with him. He is the amen, the faithful and true one. He is the source of all creation, and that includes your own heart and life. He speaks to you. And he wants us to know that what he wants is not lukewarm relationship where there's no passion, there's no life, there's no joy, there's 
There's no real relationship. That's not what he wants. He wants our hearts. He wants us to know him, and those who know him are truly alive in him. They've got spirit, a spirit like living waters flowing through their soul, Lord. They are alive. Jesus makes us alive in him. Maybe today you just need to say, God, I've been lukewarm. I've been going through all the motions. I've, they're doing the religious thing, but today, Jesus, I want you to make me alive. I don't want to be lukewarm. I want to be hot. I want to be hot for you. But I know that apart from you, I can do nothing. So bring your presence because your presence will make me alive. Pray that today. Maybe there are others here who have been hoping in their own self-sufficiency, their own riches and their own health or their own relationships or accomplishments or socioeconomic status means more to them than Jesus. And they hope in those things more than Jesus. They trust in those things more than Jesus. Maybe today you just need to say, Jesus, this thing, whatever it is, just name it. This is distracting me from relationship with you. This is making me lukewarm. It's making me fall away. I've gotten so caught up in X, Y, or Z that I'm losing my passion for you. Jesus, please, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know that what I need is you. I just... I ask your forgiveness. Would you cleanse me? Would you forgive me? I turn from that and I turn toward you today. I open the door of opportunity, the invitation that you've given, and I thank you. Help me live for the promise of what you give.